Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. Do you remember we were talking about little brain organelles that have been developed by science and are about to go into space? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, New Atlas is reporting that a lab-grown mini-brain has developed basic eyes that can quote-unquote see. Guys, oh. what what are we doing? Oh, <laughs> like... I saw this picture. Yes. Oh, yes. That's just, right. It kind of this looks thing. like if you peeled a white grape and <laughs> added two melty chocolate chips on it. And it's kind of adorable. It's almost like a pre-Pokemon, if you will, which, oh. you know, given what it is, kind of <laughs> makes sense. But what they did is they used induced pluripotent stem cells, also known as iPSCs, the team induced brain organoids to develop rudimentary eye structures that can sense light and send signals to the rest of the brain. Mm. You know, so like, okay, they grow an ear on the back of a rat or they grow a liver mm-hmm. or whatever. Like, I've never had a problem with that because to me, like, there's no brain. So it's just like cells. Mm-hmm. But this is not eyes that they grew. This is a brain that grew its own eyes. That's correct. Yes. <laughs> okay. I don't like it. I Just know. For the record. And okay, so before we get too far, however, into our what could possibly go wrong refrain, the reason they're doing this is because the human brain is one of the most ridiculously complex things nature has ever concocted, right? So mm-hmm. in order to help understand the human brain better, scientists have been making miniature versions in the lab. What they do is they take skin cells from adult donors, revert them back into stem cells, and then place them into a culture that mimics the environment of a developing brain, which basically encourages these stem cells to form different brain cells. And the end result is a pea-sized three-dimensional brain model that can be used to study development, disease, or even the effects of drugs, which if anybody's taking antidepressants, remember, we don't really know exactly how they work. We just right. kind of prescribe them. That's true of a lot of medicine. Exactly. So this is important work, even if the way to get there is super sci-fi, right? So the University Hospital in Dusseldorf has taken it a step further by growing brain organoids complete with optic cups vision structures found in the eye where the optic nerve meets the retina and they grew symmetrically at the front of the mini brain which you know kind of gives it a very striking look Mm -hmm. but function matters a lot more than form and these optic cups were functional they have a diverse range of retinal cell types which formed neuronal networks they even found lens and cornea tissue being formed wow so let's talk about the sample size and how they actually did this they used stem cells from four donors they made 314 brain organoids in 16 batches. Wow. I know. It was a lot more than I expected. And about 72% of them formed these optic cups. And these structures began to appear by the 30-day mark. So cooking for about a month. They matured within Uh 50 days which is about a similar time frame to when human embryos develop retinas. So it's kind of following the programming of these cells, right? (laughs) Well, and so that also means that these guys are clones, right? If you're just taking one person's donor skin 
and turning it into brain tissue, DNA-wise, it's identical to the donor. So we're halfway to, like, growing a clone that can provide us organs when we've (laughs) spent our life partying too much. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So we made a tiny sort of brain and gave it eyes. How does it feel? Is it in excruciating pain? Is this torture? Like, what... What are the, like, it's not like we just made a stem cell or a heart or something, right? Like, it's a brain. And it's developing on its own. Like, if this thing is going on the standard embryo schedule and we keep waiting for another nine months, do we now have a fetal brain with fully working (laughs) sensory? Yeah. 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 If they are truly sentient and feeling, clearly this is something we're going to have to stumble on accidentally further down the road once the science has become extremely commonplace, much to our horror. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know what's up next, right? Like, they're just going to poke it. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, this is why you are not a scientist. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. So we've been talking about life. Let's talk about death a little bit. This article comes to us from Atlas Obscura, and it's titled, How a Grave Cleaner Uncovers the Past. Oh, is this that woman on TikTok? Yes, it is. Awesome. Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, she's very popular. So the cross-topped gravestone was dark brown. It's engravings illegible, lost beneath a thick layer of grime. Alicia Williams began, as she does with every restoration, by gently scraping away debris with a plastic putty knife. She then rinsed the surface with a biodegradable solution and scrubbed it with a soft brush. After another rinse and some drying time came the big reveal, a pristine white tombstone bearing a clear inscription. And it said, Josephine, daughter of O.G. and G.P. Bell, July 19th, 1899, to November 10th, 1903, with the title, A Little Child Shall Lead Them. But the real magic of William's grave cleaning, which she shares with her 2.4 million followers on TikTok, is that she doesn't just reveal the headstone hiding beneath years of wear and tear, she also reveals the person. Mm -hmm. Josephine died at the age of four when her dress caught fire in her nursery. (gasps) Oh. Yeah. In another video, Williams cleans the grave of Carrie Davis, 1893 to 1948, and explains that he was a member of the U.S. Army's 505th Engineers Service Battalion, an all-black unit that played a crucial role in constructing railroads, highways, and drainage systems during World War I. So Williams, who largely focuses on graves in her local cemetery in Bedford, Virginia, posts her videos as Lady Tafos. That's T-A-P-H-O-S, because Mm. a Tafophile is a cemetery enthusiast. Hmm. Some viewers come for the soothing scraping and brushing sounds. Others are drawn to the dramatic makeovers or the tributes and history lessons. And the videos can garner as many as 6 million likes, especially impressive for graves that in many cases have been ignored for decades. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I watched the video of Josephine and it's really kind of calm and soothing. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it's a little bit morbid and sad, right? But also fascinating because you have a view into history and she pretty much just does a step-by-step footage of her scraping and going through these multiple layers while little facts and snippets from history pop up Mm -hmm. on the TikTok video. It's a really, really lovely and thoughtful experience. Yeah. For me, it's like an OCD thing because there's like the rinsing stage where she's like Mm -hmm. rinsing in these straight lines downward and it's coming clean and it's all white underneath. And it just it's very soothing 
to watch something get meticulously cleaned like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm. absolutely. And so for Williams, the work is deeply therapeutic. She started cleaning graves as a calming activity when she was navigating a painful divorce. She says, after I cleaned several graves, I started to learn that it was a work in progress. It took 100 years or more for them to get into that condition, and it was going to take some time for them to look better. And it sort of became this metaphor for my own healing. So Atlas Obscura asks, you know, what draws you to the graves that you choose to clean? And William says, the ones that draw me the most are the ones that are by themselves, when clearly there's no one around them. I always find myself thinking that these people probably have an interesting story to tell, and a lot of the times they do. I cleaned two that were by themselves, but near each other, and it turns out those two had both been killed by trains. A lot of times, that burial in the cemetery might be the only record that a person ever existed at all. There might not have been a birth or death record for some reason, but sometimes you can figure out who they are by the surrounding graves. You never know what you're going to come across. There's a tremendous amount of minority history that's been swept under the rug for generations, and their stories deserve to be told. Mm -hmm. And then Atlas Obscura asks, do you have a favorite story you uncovered or a person you learned about while cleaning their grave? William says, my favorite grave is the one I feel most protective of. It's Lucy. She was formerly enslaved, and she's buried at the feet of her enslavers. She's believed to be the only African-American buried in the cemetery, which is significant because it was a segregated cemetery for the town. Mm. So the fact that her former enslavers were like, we're going to bury a servant with us because she stayed with the family after emancipation, I just think that's so fascinating, and Mm. I've never seen that in my town. It says on her Mm. stone that she had a son. I still wish every day that somewhere out there she's got a descendant, but I have not had any luck finding one. Mm. And then Atlas Obscura, do you have any advice for someone who'd like to start cleaning gravestones? She says, patience and permission. If you want to clean a grave, just buy the right products and then get permission from the cemetery. You also have to be patient and understand that it might take a little bit of time. You might be disappointed right after you clean it. It's important to wait and let the cleaner do its work. The average turnaround time for your cleaning to take effect, I would say, is probably two to three months. Hmm. I've had some take as long as six months. And then the last question, what do you hope viewers take away from your videos? Williams answers, my one wish is that I inspire more people to do it and to share the stories they find. I'm just one person and I can only do so much, especially in my one little town. So I want to know when someone else does this and I want to know about what they've uncovered. There's so much in the news about tearing down of things and the removal of things. Why not try to restore something and tell these stories? Yeah, this woman's awesome. And I think it is, it speaks to something I think that she has become so wildly popular on TikTok. You know, part of it's the ASMR aspect of the scraping, part of it's the OCD of the cleaning, part of it's the history. (laughs) But I think, Mm -hmm. I don't know, I hope that we're all ready for something that's a little nicer than (laughs) what we've been going through for so long now. Mm -hmm. It feels, it's very heartwarming. I like it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I really feel like it's also especially valuable in the U.S. as such a youth-oriented culture to have more examples of, you know, honoring the past and honoring mm-hmm. history mm-hmm. and the people that came before us. Like, I think that's that's really, really noble. Hmm. So, yeah, TikTok. Yeah, you should go check it out, Angie. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You know, I keep resisting TikTok because I guess my age is showing, but... Just don't just... stare at it for too long. Yeah, it's <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right, this next article is from Live Science, and it's called What Color is the Universe? And the author comes out swinging, quote, let's get this out of the way first. It's not black. Because, you know, as Ivan Baldry, a professor at the John Moores University Astrophysics Research Institute, notes, black is not a color. Black is the absence of detectable light, right? 
Mm-hmm. And there is plenty of light in the universe. So Baldry and a colleague named Carl Glazebrook have co-published a study in the Astrophysical Journal that analyzes the total light coming from the tens of thousands of galaxies that we can see and used a computer program to combine it into a single spectrum that they say represents the color of the universe as a whole. And they've actually been sort of doing this on and off for like 20 years and updating the color as they went along, but we'll get into that in a little bit. They do admit that it's a little interpretive for several reasons. First, stars and galaxies emit huge amounts of electromagnetic radiation, only some of which is visible to human eyes. The waves themselves range in size from gamma rays at the shortest end through X-rays, ultraviolet light, visible light, infrared light, microwaves, and finally radio waves. So the quote-unquote color of the universe would actually be different for the many animals who can, for example, see ultraviolet light. What's more, there are actually blind spots in the spectrum of colors that humans can see because the cones and rods in our eyes are specialized for different ranges that don't necessarily overlap. There are wavelengths in between these ranges that the average human doesn't pick up. Like, we see a combination of red and blue as purple, but that's really just our eyes telling us that both red and blue light are present at the same time. There is a Mm -hmm. color, so to speak, that is an actual wavelength in between those two that we can't see. So, again, the computer program that Baldry and Glazebrook used had to filter out the wavelengths within the visible light spectrum that we can't see in order to calculate what the universe would theoretically look like to human eyes. And the third big thing they had to account for was redshifting, which is what happens when wavelengths get stretched out over long distances. Astronomers know that when a galaxy is further away, the light from it that's reaching us is older and has been warped by the ongoing expansion of the universe. So Baldry and Glazebrook were careful to convert the wavelengths that we measure here on Earth against those galaxies' redshift values so that they were considering the color of each galaxy as it would appear from up close, relatively speaking. So when all that was said and done, the answer they came up with most recently was, sadly, a little boring. It's a very light beige, which, (laughs) you know, is not surprising because white is the combination of all wavelengths of visible light. And when you're dealing with Mm -hmm. an average on this kind of scale, of course, it's going to look basically white. But they decided to give the color a unique name anyway, which was voted on by the research team as a whole. And the winner was Cosmic Latte. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Some other nominations included Cappuccino Cosmico, Big Bang Beige, and my personal favorite, Primordial Clam Chowder. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So if you want to see the color for yourself, there's a big square of it in the article. And because, of course, everyone's monitor is going to render it differently, they also give the hex value, which is FFF8E7. And so I'm going to go ahead and confess now that I actually chose this article largely because it reminded me of an anecdote from my youth that is directly connected to these same two researchers. So, like Hmm. I said, Baldry and Glazebrook have been working on this project on and off since the early 2000s, sort of refining their technique and updating the color as they went along. And I specifically remember when their very first paper came out in 2002, because at the time, our local newspaper, the Austin American Statesman, published a piece on it. And of course, they included a little square of the color that they thought the universe was at the time, which was this kind of soft grayish turquoise. And I remember all this because I had a good friend whose mother was always sort of looking for these like spiritual connections to the world around her. Like she's a wonderful lady. I love her to death. But she has this habit of cobbling together a sort of emotional symbolism out of everything she touches. 
And Mm. when she saw this article in the paper back in 2002, she decided on the spot that she was going to repaint her entire kitchen in this turquoise color so that she would be surrounded by the color of the universe. So she took the newspaper to Home Depot. She brought in the painters. She went through the whole thing. And then literally like a week later, Baldry and Glazebrook published an update to their paper, the first of many, as we can see from this article today, and basically said, oops, we forgot to take this mathematical thing into account. Here's the real color of the universe. And it was this nasty greenish brown color. And I remember teasing her like, come on, I thought you wanted to be surrounded by the color of the universe. You got to repaint. <laughs> so anyway, it's a good thing she didn't because, of course, as we find out now, assuming they're really right this time, basically every apartment in the world is already painted this standard off-white color. So good for apartments for being ahead of the curve, I guess. I don't know. But her <laughs> kitchen was st- is still turquoise to this day. Is it a nice turquoise at least? Yeah. The initial color was very nice, which I think, you know, it just goes to show she was like, yeah, I want to be surrounded by the color of the universe, but also it's a nice color. Like when it was this yeah. vomit green brown, she was like, mm, no, the universe can suck it. Like, I'm not into that. <laughs> Next link. Next Next link. link. Okay, I'm feeling a little defensive about my lack of TikTok engagement. But in my defense, (laughs) Yale News has put together a study that definitively puts data behind this assertion that likes and shares amplify expressions of moral outrage over time because users learn such language gets rewarded with an increased number of likes and shares. And these rewards have the greatest influence on users connected, get this, with politically moderate networks. Hmm. Oh. Yeah. Yale's William Brady, a postdoctoral researcher in the Yale Department of Psychology and the first author of the study, noted social media's incentives are changing the tone of our political conversations online. And if you have been online on social media in the last five or ten years, this is going to be a real no-duh moment for you. But Mm -hmm. the important thing here is that we've got data. So the Yale team measured the expression of moral outrage on Twitter during real-life controversial events, and they studied the behavior of subjects in controlled experiments designed to test whether social media's algorithms, which reward users for posting popular content, encourage outrage expressions. They had to compile the evidence by assembling a team which built machine learning software capable of tracking moral outrage in Twitter posts. And in observational studies of over 12 million tweets from over 7,000 Twitter users, they used the software to test whether users expressed more outrage over time, and if so, why? They found that the incentives of social media platforms really do change how people post. So Hmm. if you get more likes and retweets when you express outrage in a tweet, you're more likely to express outrage in later posts. And to back up these findings, the researchers did do controlled behavioral experiments to demonstrate that being rewarded for expressing outrages causes users to increase these outraged expressions. Again, a lot of this is no dub, but it's really important to have the science in here if you're the kind of person who is moved by scientific data. Sure. The study was very careful not to say whether amplifying moral outrage is good or bad for society. They'll leave that up to us. They made sure to really stress that this isn't what their findings. But, you know, I'm going to try to get into TikTok. I can't leave it, you know, on the burner (laughs) forever. I'm probably not going to be doing like financial advice on it because I have had people send me TikToks and they're like, is this correct? And like, if this person were a real financial advisor, 
they would not be using TikTok in this right, way. Right, right. <laughs> Come after them, but you know, different conversation. But I'll, I'll give it a go. You know, cleaning gravestones is probably as soothing as it needs to be for an elder goth like myself. Well, I was gonna say, like, you can probably find those videos repeated elsewhere, but they're gonna be repeated on places like YouTube, which are just as bad as mm-hmm. far as amplifying awful things. Yeah. I mean, I I wonder to what degree, like, if you removed the like function, does that help, or does it just yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure if it would help. Not that they ever would, but... I mean, it's also that when you hit the button, you know, the outrage button, mm-hmm. people respond to that emotionally and they like it and it primes the pump for the algorithm, which causes your post to go further. Mm-hmm. You yep. get more likes, you get more views, you get more dopamine. Yep. And if you have something to sell, you realize, oh, right. like, that's the way to do it. So that's what I'm always going to do. And Mm -hmm. I spend uh, quite a bit of time on Twitter now, and I've actually turned my Twitter experience into a very pleasant one, mostly by aggressively filtering keywords, muting people Mm -hmm. who who tend to spawn discourse, and just avoiding anybody who tends to act in this way that is sensationalizing, Mm -hmm. uh, is the way I would explain it. You know, I'm of the opinion that you absolutely don't need science to see this, you just need to be (laughs) on Twitter for any amount of time. Right. Uh, It's very clear. But um, yeah, like it, it's a huge issue. Well, and I think one of the really fascinating examples is, I don't know if you guys know anything about the Steakum Twitter account. No. no. So Steakum is just like a cheap brand of like pureed meat in frozen sheets, whatever. They decided a while back, apparently, that their social media manager was just going to be super anti-advertising. And he's got just this sort of moderatizing message. Like a lot of what he says is like, yes. You have to be able to discern facts and you have to be able Mm -hmm. to expand your mind and be open minded, whatever. And everyone's constantly like, I had no idea that the most influential political voice in my life would be a meat brand, you know, (laughs) and it's become a really, really big thing. But the thing that people don't even remember is that the reason the Stakem account initially sort of went viral because they've been doing this for years. The reason they initially went viral is because the person running the account started a fight with Neil deGrasse Tyson. What? And at the time, what the account was doing was basically saying, you're being an extremist. Stop it. You're contributing to the problem. And so, Mm. you know, it then drew back into this whole moderatized message that it has. But fundamentally, the thing that got attention was still the fact that the account reached out and put down a verbal smackdown on Neil deGrasse Tyson. And Mm -hmm. so even too, I saw it. Yeah. And so like even the moderate messages that are trying to get through, the only way they get through is by doing something outrageous in the first place. So it's, you know, it doesn't give you a mm-hmm. lot of hope, frankly. No. It's kind of depressing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, take a page out of Way's book, curate the heck out of your yeah. social media garden. You really want to make sure to evict the weeds that are threatening to take over and make your lawn ugly. You want to cultivate the really lovely ones and make sure it's a place of growth and peace for you. Good Lord. Right. <laughs> Do yeah. your best. Or just watch some grave cleaning videos and then get off. Like, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Next link. Next Next link. link. Okay, this article comes to us from gizmodo.com. It's titled, Jeff Bezos instigates potentially crushing delay of NASA lunar lander. Oh, is this about him suing NASA, which, by the way, is the most evil villain Lex Luthor move (laughs) ever? Yeah, for real, right? I know. So, you know, now that we have had this very long conversation about moral outrage, let's engage. Yeah, let's get on. (laughs) NASA has agreed to put its SpaceX lunar lander contract on hold for a second time as it deals with a Blue Origin lawsuit. 
Work on the Artemis lunar lander may not recommence until November, putting NASA's plans to return astronauts to the moon in 2024 in even greater jeopardy. Blue Origin filed its suit with the U.S. Court of Federal Claims late last week, and according to an emailed NASA statement, NASA has voluntarily paused work with SpaceX for the Human Landing System, HLS, Option A contract effective August 19th through November 1st. So, in exchange for this temporary pause, NASA said all parties agreed to an expedited litigation schedule, adding that space agency officials will continue to work with the Department of Justice to review the details of the case and look forward to a timely resolution of this matter. And according to Space News, NASA Administrator Bill Nelson said, the matter is out of our hands as the case is being handled by the Department of Justice. This latest delay in the project comes three weeks after the Government Accountability Office, GAO, denied a protest filed by Blue Origin. The Jeff Bezos-led company had argued that the bidding process was unfair and that NASA was supposed to award multiple contracts for the lander. In addition to filing a protest with the GAO, Blue Origin has lobbied Congress, offered a $2 billion discount off its $5.99 billion quote to build a lunar lander, produced infographics criticizing the SpaceX lunar lander design, and SpaceX has intervened in the lawsuit. The Elon Musk-led company is seeking to ensure that the court has a complete and accurate picture of the facts and circumstances surrounding this protest, including the substantial harm that SpaceX will suffer if the court's grant relief sought by Blue Origin. And in its statement, NASA said it remains committed to Artemis and to maintaining the nation's global leadership in space exploration. So if I'm understanding this correctly, what happened was Bezos and Musk both bid on a project and Bezos thought his bid was a sure thing. So he gave a higher price than he needed to. And once it turned out it wasn't a sure thing and he didn't win, now he's crying and basically saying, oh, I can lower the price. I can give you a lower price for that. And also I'll sue you. But yeah, yeah basically. Dude, <laughs> screw that guy. You give yeah. your best bid. That's being a businessman. He absolutely yep. deserves to lose this thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so with all this, a crude moon landing in 2024 has never looked more unlikely than it does today. <laughs> in addition to not having a viable lunar lander, at least not for the foreseeable future, NASA won't have its next-gen spacesuits ready until April 2025, and it still has yet to get its space launch system off the ground. So a lot of stuff is blocking us from going to space, primarily billionaires and technology. So same old problems. Yeah, uh, this is uh, OK. So <laughs> I don't actually have a problem with the privatization of some stuff because I do think competition is healthy. But this is the yeah. opposite of competition. This is them no, slowing is... down the process. Yeah. And waving their. Ugh, I'm sorry. I mm -hmm. respect both of you as businessmen. If I ever work for you, I'm sure I can temper these uh, instincts. But <laughs> don't want to close those doors. You never know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to burn any bridges that aren't built yet. But <sighs> it's basically a giant rocket measuring contest is what this is. There you and go. That would... yeah. Forget both of them. Very well put. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Well, speaking of annoying rich people. The Guardian has an article for us that combines adorable animals and schadenfreude for the rich, which oh. I've always said go together like peanut butter and jelly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's called Attack of the Giant Rodents or Class War, Argentina's Rich Riled by New Neighbors. So as the title indicates, we are located in Argentina for this one, specifically a gated community just north of Buenos Aires known as Nordelta. And just to give you an idea of how wealthy and frankly comprehensive this gated development is compared to the rest of Argentina, it includes multiple swimming pools, tennis and soccer fields, four private schools, a shopping mall, and its own <laughs> exclusive medical center. 
Like, it's a little gated city, basically. Wow. Yeah. The Argentinian National Symphony Orchestra regularly performs concerts that are open only to Nordelta residents. And sometimes those concerts are performed on a floating stage in the middle of the central lake on the property. (laughs) So it's fair to say it's a pretty fancy place to live. This summer, however, which it should be noted is actually winter in Argentina, Nordelta has apparently been completely inundated with hordes of capybaras. Oh, wait, those really big, like, (laughs) guinea pig type things? They're, like, almost dog size? Yeah. I'm personally a massive fan of the capybara. But in case any of our listeners are not familiar with these adorable creatures, like Angie said, they're basically like giant aquatic guinea pigs. They grow to about three feet long and two feet high. They can weigh up to 130 pounds. And they're generally known as very friendly and sociable animals. Like, at the risk of showing my bias here, I follow a Twitter account that is nothing but pictures of capybaras hanging out with other animals, including ducks and rabbits and monkeys and even alligators. Oh, wow. I gotta say, Jen, I don't know if you can really comment on this article because you do sound kind of biased. I am. I totally am. I'm on the side of the capybaras 100%. And basically, everybody in the animal kingdom is tight with the capybaras. They all agree with me. Yeah. That being said, it is admittedly a little different when you're talking about a herd of several hundred capybaras on your front lawn. (laughs) That's a lot. Aside from the general destruction of their landscaping, residents are reporting altercations with pet dogs and numerous traffic accidents from capybaras wandering into the road. One local man told the daily paper La Nación that their excrement has also become a problem. (laughs) Some residents have threatened to get out their hunting rifles, but the capybara is protected in Argentina, and local wildlife officials are reminding everyone that humans are prohibited from touching or interfering with them in any way. Ecologist Enrique Viale says it's a mistake to frame the rodent influx as an invasion. He says, quote, it's the other way around. Nordelta invaded the ecosystem of the Carpinchos, which is what they're called locally in Argentina. He says wealthy real estate developers with government backing have to destroy nature in order to sell clients the dream of living in the wild because the people who buy those homes want nature, but without the mosquitoes, snakes or anything else that actually lives in nature. Which I agree with. I think we we see that in a lot of cities where you have this suburban expansion where you're like, oh, trees and a lake. But also, I don't want anything living in the lake. That's gross. Yeah. <laughs> That's what... Ma- Please, make my nature pretty and sterile. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And apparently, Nordelta in particular is a pretty egregious example of this. It was built on mm-hmm. the wetlands of the Paraná, which is the second longest river in South America after the Amazon. And Viali says the river is suffering not just from suburban development all along its length, but also from cattle and soybean mega farmers, all of whom shore up the wetlands and drain them and remove their absorbent function in the ecosystem, which not only disrupts the animal population, but also leads to catastrophic flooding in areas that haven't been drained, namely all the poorer neighborhoods nearby. So it's probably not surprising that a lot of people in Argentina are rooting for the capybaras in this situation. Mm -hmm. They're being portrayed on social media as being on the side of political progressives known as Peronists. (laughs) And it's kind of tongue in cheek, but kind of not. You know, the people are like, yeah, you may have all the money, but we have a capybara army on our side that's going to take you down. (laughs) All things considered, I think it's probably better than guillotines. You know, if the capybaras can uh, can get in there and maybe just rough things up a little bit. Serve some eviction notices. Yeah, yeah. exactly. (laughs) 
But yes, I fully admit I am biased. I hope they clear out the whole neighborhood and take over. And like little capybaras sitting on really fancy seats in libraries with like little chandeliers hanging over them. Oh, yes. I would 100% follow that Twitter account. This could be a total tourist trap theme park situation. Like instead of doing Fossil Rim where you yeah. stay in your car and feed, you know, zebra out of your window, maybe we can even dress them up in costumes. Like this thing's got legs. <laughs> little top hats. <laughs> I would absolutely pay to go to that safari. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. Okay, a little bit of good news from Gizmodo. Apparently, saving the ozone layer also helped buy us time to address climate change. Remember the ozone layer, guys? Hey? Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. We got yeah, rid of all right. of our aerosol cans. Yeah, that's right. Chlorofluorocarbon. So if you grew up in mm. the 90s, this was a very popular topic, mostly kind of like late 80s, early 90s. You know, it was in hairspray, these things in aerosol cans. And so this is sort of an unusual study in that it doesn't look at an existing problem, but it floats a hypothetical scenario trying to imagine a world where had we not gone through with what is now known as the Montreal Protocol, we would be in a much worse place right now. So Hmm. it's worth looking back at how the Montreal Protocol is proof that good things can happen and we can make a positive impact against climate change. The treaty was inked in the 80s to phase out common chemicals known as chlorofluorocarbons or CFCs. These were widely used in refrigerators, air conditioners, aerosol cans, and they were known to destroy the ozone layer. The treaty was a success. Woohoo! And even 30 years after we had this treaty, the ozone layer is showing signs of recovery. It's expected to return to pre-1980s levels by the mid-2050s. Hmm. Other research has looked at what the new study's authors refer to as the world avoided, which is where we kept using CFCs and the ozone layer thinned. And it turns out that when vegetation is damaged by high UV, like with a thin ozone layer, it absorbs less carbon. It does less of the work that we need them to do. Hmm. Without the Montreal Protocol, CFCs would be on track to contribute an additional 2.1 degrees Fahrenheit of global warming by the end of the century wow. just from greenhouse effect alone. And when you pile on you know, the damage to plants, trees, other carbon sinks, the combined effects on the climate would basically make swaths of the planet unbearably hot, even if we magically stopped carbon emissions tomorrow. So it sounds like we've avoided total ozone wow. disaster, but there are are some forms of geoengineering, like this radical idea to cool the planet by spraying reflective particles in the atmosphere. We're saying, hey, you know, let's study to make sure it doesn't mess up this ozone that we have magically and painstakingly begun Mm -hmm. to repair. And we also have to keep in mind that the Montreal Protocol was dealing with just a handful of chemicals that were only made by a handful of companies and for which there were Mm -hmm. replacements readily available. And so that's really key to understanding how these industries and these companies and products were able to pivot on relatively short notice with the timeline of human climate argument. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it does give us a little bit of hope to say, look, when you do something, it matters. You can change Mm -hmm. something if you have a coordinated response that nobody fights against and says, I'm going to use extra CFCs just to piss everybody (laughs) off. Like, we can turn this thing around. It's going to get awful before we do, but we do have the ability to make a difference. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include The Shadowy Business of International Education, What Can We Do with a Captured Asteroid, and Behold, Carbon-Free Steel Now Exists. So that speaks a little to Angie's last article. Maybe, maybe we'll turn it around. Who knows? But all that and more can be found on damageinteresting.com, along with everything we talked about today. 
If you happen to notice the lack of ads in our podcast, that was not an accident. It's a choice. We don't like talking about things we don't really like. We don't like trying to sell you on things you don't really need to buy. And we hope that you agree with that decision and are willing to support us in this endeavor. If you'd like to do so, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.